If there's a fault line in Beethoven's development as a composer, a year that marks a period of irrevocable change, then it's surely 1815. This was the year of the final defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte, and with him, for the moment at least, the defeat of the ideals of the French Revolution, the establishment on this earth of a kingdom of liberty, fraternity and equality. It must have seemed to many on the left that the hope was dead. In 1814-15, the Congress of Vienna, that's Beethoven's adopted home, brought the apparent triumph for good of conservative values, the re-establishment of the old order across Europe. In the Austrian territories, a big machine of repression went into action, and old revolutionaries like Beethoven were now objects of suspicion. This was despite Beethoven's enthusiastic participation in celebrations of the defeat of Napoleon, with pieces like Wellington's Victory, or the rather less impressive cantata Die glorreicher Augenblick, The Glorious Moment. 1815 also brought a change in Beethoven's fortunes. Now... Suddenly, it must have seemed, he was out of fashion. Rossini was the man of the hour. Italian opera was the thing. Beethoven's earnings fell, and he himself was placed under surveillance. A couple of leaves of a secret police file on Beethoven has survived. They make amusing, but slightly chilling, reading. It was striking. There was almost a decade in which Beethoven didn't compose a symphony. After number eight was completed in 1812, he didn't actually start to work seriously on its successor, number nine, until 1821. There is one big symphonic project, which is unprecedentedly ambitious in scale and complexity, but it's not for orchestra. It's for a solo instrument, a piano sonata. Even so, you can tell from the very beginning it's going to be big. That's the beginning of Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata, opus 106 in B-flat major to be precise, which he composed in 1817-18. Hammerklavier sounds wonderfully appropriate for that music, doesn't it? A celebration of hammers, of the percussive power of the piano in those massive opening chords, and nimble running figures, which seem designed to show how light, how delicate those hammers could also be. Hammers can sing, too. But Hammerklavier isn't the title as such. Beethoven simply designated this work Große Sonata für das Hammerklavier, Grand Sonata for the Hammerklavier. This is the German term for the Italian piano, the rising instrument of its time. Still, as British listeners, we can also take a little pride in the fact that a British piano played an important role here. In 1817, the English firm Broadwood rather generously sent Beethoven a gift of a six-octave piano. And clearly, this was a major inspiration on the new work. You could just imagine Beethoven reveling in the extended range of notes and colour and power. At last, he has a solo instrument capable of rivaling the orchestra and thus of conveying ideas and developments of truly symphonic scope.
It's easy to imagine Beethoven at the keys of his splendid new instrument, his imagination liberated and refreshed by the new world of sonorous possibilities opening out. Complex textures are now possible. There's an incision and power to rival the brass and the timpanis, and overall, an effect of great brilliance. Pause at this point, though. By 1817, at the time he began the Hammerklavier, Beethoven was almost, if not completely, deaf. Beethoven, by this stage, would have to trust his inner ear, plus perhaps the feel of the instrument under his fingers, and maybe something of the vibration transmitted via his hands and feet. As we listen to the crystalline beauty of writing like this next passage, nothing like anything with piano writing before in sound or expressive power, remember that this is a composer who would have had no way of hearing it, of testing it. The sound of the piano itself would be a memory, possibly a dim memory by 1817, and he'd never heard pianos like this fabulous new Broadwood. He's led entirely by that inner ear, by that inner light. It's poignant to think of Beethoven relying on that inner strength in music like that. Think of all the things that had gone wrong in his life, his failing hearing, the collapse of his career as a performer, while on the political stage the apparent death of the democratic ideal. It's a situation rather like that for many on the left after the fall of the Berlin Wall in our time. Plus, at the same time, there was a change in fashion away from Beethoven's kind of deep seriousness. People now wanted entertainment, distraction. This could have been the end for Beethoven as a composer too. Instead, it forced him to draw on his deepest resources, and that's just as important for the journey that the Hammerklavier Sonata undergoes. Let's go back to the first movement and that massive assertive beginning. Interestingly, Beethoven wrote some words on the motif in the sketch. Vivat Rudolphus, long live Rudolph. This is a reference to his patron and the dedicatee of Opus 106, Archduke Rudolph. This was a very artistic, enlightened man, a man who'd also fallen on somewhat hard times. There's a suggestion here of grand tribute, one great man acknowledging another. But as we've heard, the continuation rapidly takes us into new territory, the other side of the piano, you might say, and of Beethoven. And it's even more pronounced when that Vivat Rudolphus theme comes back at the first climax. There's a sudden change of harmony and key, 
The piano leads off into new regions, regions of fabulous delicacy. This range of contrast was originally possible only on the orchestra. Now it's achievable by one player, so a new kind of adventure is possible. The symphonic journey becomes more personal. There's a terrific central development section, as epic or dramatic as in any of his symphonies. The themes are treated in heroic fugues, suddenly pulled apart, reassembled in new forms. And there's a terrific moment where Beethoven pulls the music out of ethereal remote regions and by sheer force of will delivers a tremendous return of the original motive in the original key. It's like a great sportsman snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. And again, it's as thrilling as anything in the symphonies. In terms of the piano sonata, it's absolutely unprecedented. There's a famous passage in the writings of the musical philosopher Theodore Adorno, which talks about how Beethoven's recapitulations often have the force of a crushing authoritarian. That's how it is. Yet for me, it's striking how often Beethoven's that's how it is is so often followed by questioning. Now, there's no place for that in authoritarian regimes. Listen again to the point of return. At first, we're still in the remote key. Then Beethoven twists us back into the home key, and the Vivat Rudolphus motive comes storming back. That's how it is. I'm the greatest. But then the questioning begins again. Forceful reassertion isn't enough. And the whole idea of Beethoven's symphonic thinking as authoritarian, that it's some sort of colossal power trip, sustains an even bigger blow in the scherzo. 
Now, that title, as is well known, means joke. But if this is a joke, it's a decidedly uncomfortable one. The movement begins as a seemingly innocent little dance tune. And yet, hesitations, harmonic questionings, it all gives the impression rather quickly that this music isn't as stable as it seems. The central contrasting trio theme is even less stable. Now it's the rhythm that reflects disquiet. We're still in a fast one, two, three, one, two, three, yet the theme tugs against the beat so much that you don't quite know where you are. Try counting along. You'll probably very quickly get lost. Now something decidedly odd happens. Tempo, meter, texture, all change. We're in a different kind of movement, a different kind of dance movement. Suddenly this too dissolves into a crazy bravura upward run. Then comes a tiny burst of pure Tom and Jerry. And then we're back into the theme. This scherzo is very short, but if the first movement had left a sense of authoritarian that's how it is, this movement seems dedicated to the Lord of Misrule. Everything is pulled apart, there's no certainty anywhere anymore, and the end of the scherzo is one of the least final endings in all Beethoven, as you'll hear in just a little while. This leaves the slow movement with a lot of work to do. There's no more certainty, so the adagio now turns darkly inward for an intense, probing, long melody. There's so much in this slow movement of the Hammerklavier Sonata, but overall you can chart a progress through grief, anguished self-interrogation, protest, despair, to resignation and profound peace.
Beethoven's inner resources lead him to find a new kind of stability, far deeper than the self-assertion of that's how it is. And again, this leads him to fabulous new piano textures and colours. At the very end are some gorgeous piano chords, widely spaced like bells. I don't know of anything in piano music like this before. Certainly Beethoven would never have heard anything like this. How did he know it would work? The finale emerges from these depths in a tremendous return to life. Through the energy of a Bachian fugue, spectacularly reinvented in Beethovenian terms. At first, though, it emerges gradually. We sense shadows through which Beethoven tries out all kinds of different fugal or imitative writing. It's tentative at first, but with a sense of growing strength. Finally, a tremendously athletic fugal theme emerges on which Beethoven can build a whole mighty contrapuntal edifice. It's a tremendous assault course, even for a modern pianist. Yet, actually, as I said that word mighty, a question mark emerged again in my mind. Towards the end of the movement is another of those moments where something deeper, quieter, seems to throw all the Herculean striving into relief. First we hear that terrific climax that we sampled near the start of the programme. We'll hear just the high point of that again, so you can hear how Beethoven continues. Just when it seems that he's intent on pounding his new keyboard to fury, there's a sudden, radical, beautiful shift. In a second, all that striving, wrestling with leviathans, the keyboard pugilism, it's all gone. And instead, we have a simple, hushed fugal theme in even flowing crotchets, quietly eloquent. 
It reminds me of the biblical story of the prophet of Elijah, who hears a still, small voice speaking when the earthquake, wind, and fire have ceased. The energetic first fugal theme returns, as we heard there, and reasserts itself, but it's now drawn into a wonderful contrapuntal synthesis with that still, small voice theme. Something deeper than fist-slamming determination is needed, however much Beethoven may have valued that kind of sledgehammer assertion, sometimes to get himself through forests of pain and frustration. That still, small voice image, though, does persist. I've heard it said that Beethoven had a sense of God within himself. By the time he wrote the Hammerklavier Sonata, he was a long way from orthodox Christian belief. In his diaries, he notes that Socrates and Buddha are just as important revelations of truth as Christ. And he had copies of Buddhist scriptures provided by friends in the Masonic movement. Remember that essential to the Masonic movement at that time was the idea of a universalist religion, away from primitive ideas of God the Father, the tyrant. For me, the Hammerklavier Sonata gives an idea of what kind of disruptive, dark forces Beethoven had to contend with in himself, more present than ever now in his later isolation of deafness. But we also sense that quiet but far deeper strength that he was able to draw on repeatedly in order to survive, and even to be able to exult again. That's the extraordinary thing for me about this music. In its quietest moments particularly, it conveys a sense of what astonishing strength Beethoven had within himself, the strength he called God, the God within all of us. We don't have to believe in a personal God to sense that for ourselves. <laughs> 